Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Crime World with me, Nicola Talent, is coming to your town with live shows across the country. Following our flagship show, Omerta, almost sold out at the Olympia Theatre Dublin on April 27th, we're taking to the road with promoter MCD. We'll be in the INEC Killarney on April 30th, Dolans of Limerick on May 3rd, and in Belfast Limelight on May 17th. Then it's on to Cork at Cypress Avenue on May 18th, and finally Galway, where we will perform at Monroe's on May 19th. For tickets, check venue websites. Omerta. The sacred secret code of the underworld. But what happens to those who break it? Prison in and of itself is harmful at some level mm. in terms of somebody's likelihood of reoffending. The whole concept of probation is based on that idea of a second chance. People don't all change, they don't change overnight. But I think we do have to, and we certainly do operate on the basis that everybody can change. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He has dedicated his life to working with those in crisis. And Vivian Guerin, the former director of the Probation and Parole Services of Ireland, has had to manage the supervision of hundreds of criminals released from jail. So how do you manage a killer in the community or balance the rights of those who are guilty with those of their victims? Today, I'm talking with Vivian about his lengthy career, his thoughts on managing offenders and life after crime. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Let's start with that when were prisons invented and how did before we had them did we punish people yeah that's something that people don't think about because we have an underlying assumption that we've always had prisons Mm -hmm. they've always been there but we've only had them for the last couple of hundred years and before that over many centuries people were punished usually by having their bodies punished in some way, whether it was by the lash Mm. or by being hanged and executed or uh, being branded, you know, literally being branded as a 
thief or whatever the case might be. Um, and then we moved on from that um, to some extent a few hundred years ago to transportation. So, um, you know, people were sent away to the penal colonies in, in North America and in Australia and so on. And at that stage, even prisons were really only there to hold people before were they, they went. Were they sent there to work or were they just sent there to sort of boil under the scalding sun? Out, out on the on the penal colonies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, they were sent there to work. To work, yeah. 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 So, so that was seen as, I suppose it was a kind of a banishment, really. Yeah. Um, but the prisons here and in England at that time then were really to hold people. Similarly, mm. people went to prison if they didn't pay their debts or whatever. And yeah. they were held there, on, but just until they would pay their debts. Right. So the development of the real prisons as we would know them now, in say about 200 years ago, were seen by the people who set them up, established mm. them as being a positive initiative to reform criminals. Mm. Uh, and the intention was that people would be sent to prison for a period of time. They'd have, to have an opportunity to reflect on their wrongdoing and that they would come out of prison better people and that they would, in that context, be welcomed back into their community uh, as reformed individuals. And with But in right. the prisons, they weren't, I mean, you know, if you go down to Wicklow Jail or Kilmainham Jail, the first thing is like, gosh, we've got taller, you know, because you yeah, have to that's right. bend down. Yeah. They're, they're fascinating. But they were freezing cold, their food was limited, and they were rat infested. So they weren't being given a comfort. No, and there was very li limited opportunity to engage in uh, rehabilitative yeah. opportunities or training programs or education. That's so you were just thrown in there thrown on in, your own yeah. to think and to go, did Reflect, wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I say, some people thought that that would be sufficient. Mm. And even the way the prisons were physically structured was on that basis that people... Once you were in your cell, you didn't see anybody else. And so you had this time to reflect. And I guess you were supposed to pray and do whatever else you needed to do to yeah. change your thought processes. Um, and it was really only over time then that um, people recognized, like, we, we do need to do more with the people who are in prison. They're not going to just turn around their lives automatically. And then various efforts were made to do that. And in actual fact, there was a guy here in, in Ireland who's credited by many people as being one of the, the founding fathers of parole because he was, uh, he was a very reforming criminologist and so on. He was an inspector of prisons. James Organ was his name and he mm. operated in Dublin. And he started the process of assessing people while they were in prison, encouraging the prison authorities to let them out under James's supervision yeah, and to see how they got on. So that was really the first, and like that's a couple of hundred years ago, uh, the first real attempts anywhere in the world to do really? that. Yeah, yeah. Started here. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. And was the idea of letting them out, had it anything to do with overcrowding back then or was it purely because it was offering, I suppose, hope you know, life wasn't going to be life. There was going to, an end of the sentence was going to come and you were going to go back into your community. And the hope obviously is that you become a valued member of that community. Yeah, there was all of that involved and there still is. Mm -hmm. And just when you mention overcrowding, overcrowding then and now is the the killer really in terms of any rehabilitative efforts. Right. In prisons nowadays, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you know, the best plans that any prison system can have are just totally scuttled when prisons are overcrowded. Really? Uh, absolutely. Just yeah. everything goes out the Resources door. Resources uh, for, You're for just trying education to manage. and everything. Absolutely, mm. yeah. There's no, you know, 
Uh, there isn't enough education to go around. The, the prison officers are spending their time purely trying to manage and control the oversubscribed population that they have. So yeah. uh, in any country, including Ireland, now our numbers are currently going up in prison again. They're up, you know, very high compared mm. to what they were a few years ago. They're up around 4,400. Um, and what we need to bear in mind in relation to overcrowding is sometimes if you look at the national figure, it doesn't look too bad. But invariably, when you look at individual prisons, you'll see that some are worse than others. Yeah. So like yesterday in Limerick female prison, I think it was 100 at 168 percent of pop, of capacity. So that was the most overcrowded prison in the country. If you look at the national population in the prisons yesterday, I think it was just over 100% technically right. in terms of numbers, but there are always individual prisons. And sad to say, but in Ireland and internationally, the situation for women prisoners has been getting worse and worse. You know, it's just not getting any better. And like, so back before the drug problem, mm. Presumably, we had a fairly uh, even prison population. It wasn't going crazy high or crazy low, was it? Or no, up to certainly, certainly the nineteen sixties, we wouldn't have had any more than about four hundred people in prison in so Ireland. Steady, probably year in, year yeah, out. True, but you have to remember we had thousands of people in other institutions. Yeah, yeah. So we had yeah. multiple thousands of people in industrial schools, reformatories, barstools, mental hospitals mother and baby homes, Magdalene laundries, uh, you name it. So there was a vast population of people of course, detained. Yeah. But as you say, the number in actual prison was mm. around four or 500 for mm. decades. So drugs presumably changed everything. When drug crime starts, drug-related crime, do you have any idea what sort yeah, of percentage there were a of prisoners that, are that, in for that? That changed. It were like really mm. from the late 60s on, the prison population and the whole criminal justice system here in Ireland experienced a big change. And drug crime, as you say, was very much to the fore of that. Um, but there were also other changes, you know, the, the uh, people's lifestyles and socioeconomic situations were, were changing. We had the troubles in the north yeah. and the, the fallout from that. Um, even the fact that there were more cars on the road. You know, I remember when I started working as a probation officer, a lot of the people under my supervision would have been convicted of unlawful taking of a of a vehicle. Right. You rarely come across that nowadays because cars, even though they're more plentiful than ever, yeah. um, are are much harder to break into. Yeah. So things like that can influence crime, you know, crime levels and types of crime. But certainly, the whole drug thing mm. did change mm. uh, the whole scene significantly. So we had to uh, build more prisons and sort of create a system that was, like you're talking 460s, mm. we're now talking 4,000 plus. Yeah, and it grew incrementally between those two numbers. You know, yeah. like I, I think in the 1990s, there was around 1,200 or 1,500 that went up to, I remember there being a, um, not quite a hue and cry, but a, a big reaction when it went over 2,000, then over 3,000, yeah. but now we're over 4,000. And we stopped talking about it. Well, yeah, to, to some extent, but the, the system, I think what will happen, the, I always point out to people as well that the criminal justice system is a system. Mm. So what happens in one part of it inevitably and invariably has an impact on the others. So if you have prisons overcrowded or whatever, it's going to impact on the probation side, the court side, the guard side, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and 
not for the better. And just before we go on to probation, and we're going to have an explanation about what it is and what's parole, etc., for people. But just to bring you back, what it's in my head when you talked about women in prison, the increasing numbers, the conditions. What are women going to jail for? Women are going to jail for similar offences, I guess, to men, but um, very often there are significant differences, you know, and it's very often in relation to the background and the context that the woman is living in. So very often you'll find that women are involved in offending that's related to a family member, an intimate partner or whatever. They're very often people who have, you know, drug issues or mental health issues. Um, very often have experienced experienced domestic uh, violence, for example. Not always, um, but to some extent, uh, both in this country and internationally, uh, you know, some commentators observe that are we sometimes sending women to prison supposedly for their own good? You know, where they have a, a catalogue of problems, they might have relatively low levels of offending, maybe shoplifting, that kind of thing, um, or theft, or whatever. And it's really on the basis that the system sees there isn't anywhere else that's safe for them to go to. Now, in my opinion, nobody should ever be sent to prison because it's the only safe place. I mean, that's a Mm. a terrible indictment on us as a society and us as as a criminal justice and a social system. So what do you mean by that? Do you mean that there, there should be sort of, they should be going into into places where they're protected from another individual, that their criminality is connected to the fact that they possibly are under attack? Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we need to have a different type mm. of response for women. Uh, there was a very interesting project developed in Northern Ireland and Belfast a number of years ago by our um, Northern Ireland probation colleagues and others Uh, called the Inspire Project. So they set up a one-stop shop in Belfast, uh, which offered a supportive response to people who were in contact with the criminal, with women who were in contact with the criminal justice system. You also have to take into account with women the whole family Mm -hmm. relationship and dynamics. Um, At a very basic level, I often found, you know, through my work, that when a man ends up in prison, you know, there are various members of his family, his partner, uh, you know, his wife, whoever, are immediately up to see him. Is he okay? They're bringing him in stuff. It, was, it wasn't unusual for a woman to end up in prison. And even though she had those types of family relationships, that she just didn't have the same number of even visitors visiting right. or bringing her um, clothes or mm. whatever she needed. So it's just, it's different. You know, And as we know, women, rightly or wrongly, tend to have a greater slice of the caregiving responsibility. So I was going to say, I mean, on top of that, if they're mothers, what's exactly. happening back exactly. in the home? Yeah. If they're in prison, who's taken over there? And yeah. I imagine a lot of men go into prison and things don't necessarily change within the home. No, exactly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if I was arrested by the guards in the morning and taken <laughs> away, and if I had small kids, there's probably somebody who look after them. Yeah. If you were lifted in the morning God and knows. brought into custody, Place fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> um, it'd be a whole different story yeah. if 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 yeah. one has children. Yeah. I mean, that's example. just the way it is. It, it like, is. You know, it is. it's not sexist to say no, that. That's just no. the way life is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I recall years ago being in Mount Joy when they had opened the Doka Centre, and John Lonergan was introducing me to some of the female prisoners that were there, and a lot of them were drug mules at the time from exactly, South yeah. Africa and stuff like this. And they were actually working 
while in the prison to try and send a few bob home mm-hmm. to the families, you know. Still caregiving. Still caregiving yeah, from, yeah, where, from the position they were in, mm-hmm. you know. And again, they had taken on this crime, mm-hmm. it is a crime, to f- provide for their families. Like, yeah. there has to be a difference between a crime that you commit for self-benefit maybe or for, mm-hmm. but I suppose... No system is perfect, is it? And just on that note, mm. like a lot of people, a lot of researchers and so on in the area say that women have different or tend to have different pathways into crime yeah. and we need to be looking at different pathways out of crime. Right. But in the criminal justice system, as in so many areas of society, we tend to set up systems for women that are really just female versions of what we do with men. Do you know mm. the point I'm, mm. I'm saying? Mm. So if it works for men, it should work work for women, and we can't make that assumption. So now, a little bit of your own background, um, and you're going to then tell us what probation is and what parole is. You started off working with travellers in, in Tallinn in the 1980s. I did, um, yeah. I'm a social worker by by training, and uh, I worked for a couple of years out in Talla with Dublin County Council, as it was then, um, specifically with travellers. Um, and that was a great experience, I must say, and a very formative experience in terms of my um, professional development. And then in 1987, I uh, moved across and I joined the probation service as a probation officer. And then I worked there for the the next 33 years almost. And the last okay. seven years of that were spent as the director of the service. So what is it? Probation, wherever it has developed, including in Ireland, historically has always developed as an alternative to the prison system. So it's invariably developed, as was the case 100 and odd years ago here, and we were part of the UK at the time. It developed as a response to the inadequacies of just putting people in prison. So when it was set up uh, in the early 1900s here, um, it was set up to provide for an alternative to prison. So where somebody was convicted of an offence, that they they could be placed on a period of of probation in reality giving them a second chance to show that they could live a positive and productive life rather than than going to prison um over the years then it has evolved like initially you know in, in the early 1900s you had prison was the punitive sanction probation was the rehabilitative one mm-hmm. and the two have become a bit blended over over the years. So, for example, there are, if you like, tougher elements of probation now than there would have been 50 or 100 years ago. But the underlying basis is still the same. Um, Mm. Probation officers here are social workers, so they operate from the same training and values base and so on. Uh, But the point I'm making is that, um, uh, you know, people do end up under probation supervision for more serious offences now, having served a period of time in prison. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's not, initially you were you were either just sent to prison or you were immediately It was put black, on or, black or yeah. white and yeah. now this, it's greyer. So yeah. you would often hear of somebody being given the probation act, I think is yeah. what they describe in court. So they've appeared, it might be a first offence, it might be a second offence, it mightn't be seen as being, they mightn't be seen as being a risk to the community. So they're given this. Now, most people will celebrate if they get probation mm. when they go before the courts. Um, and it's managing them over a period of time. So it's like a prison sentence served in the open community. It is. It it, it effectively means that the, the possibility of you going to prison has been put on ice 
and depending on your behavior and your response to yeah. supervision, um, th- that's never going to happen. You're not going to go to prison, but there's always the possibility that if you don't cooperate, you can be brought back to court. Now, as I was saying, over the years, different, if you want more punitive elements of supervision mm-hmm. types have come in. So in 1983, for example, community service was introduced. So that's a direct alternative to a prison sentence. That's when you're out working. You're out working, doing unpaid work in the the, uh, local community. Uh, And that provides a very valuable service within local communities, and it is a real way of paying back. Mm. There's a a very significant difference between the way we do it here and the way they do it in Britain, for example. Um, And in Britain, people who are on community service, or they call it unpaid work or community payback, have to wear items of clothing that say what you're doing. What you're doing. We don't do that here and it's very specifically a part of our regulations that we don't identify people. Mm. And I think it's far more positive. It's a far more, uh, it it, it promotes rehabilitation and reintegration at a much better level. I've seen people uh, who've been put on community service doing work in their local community, maybe removing graffiti, and local people living in the area would come out and say, God, that's fantastic work. And they would presume they're from the local authority or right, whatever. Right. Or volunteering that, or whatever. Or, or volunteering yeah. or whatever. And that, apart from anything else, uh, builds up the self esteem of the individuals who are doing it and yeah. in turn has a much more positive effect. Can make them. them feel good, like. It, yeah, yeah, it can. And doing something like positive. it's not all about yeah. uh, PR or whatever. There's, there's a, in Ireland, there's a very high rate of not reoffending among mm-hmm. people who do do community service. And what about then somebody who would give, be given a suspended sentence? They are sort of policed by the probation service while they're on that suspended sentence. They're at a higher risk if they break their the rules they're living under of going into prison. They will go automatically, basically, if they if they break the conditions. The, Is that right? Well, yes and no. The current right. the current legislation around suspended sentences says that the court can suspend a sentence of imprisonment and that may or may not be with supervision. So sometimes you'll hear it in the courts or you'll see it in the newspaper. Somebody got a, a two-year suspended sentence, full stop. Now, there's always some conditions, yeah. but they may not involve supervision. Mm. But they can and do sometimes make orders that say, uh, I'm imposing a two-year sentence or whatever, suspending it for X period of time, and one of the conditions is you have to be under the supervision of a probation officer. But that's not always the case. Yeah. And the other thing that courts can do nowadays is part suspended sentence. So they can give you, let's say, a four-year jail sentence and suspend half of it yeah. on condition that you're under supervision. So you go in and you do your two years and you come out and do your two years in the community. And that's the point I was making earlier on. There, There is a broader range nowadays mm-hmm of sanctions involving probation supervision that are kind of tougher than the one that we had at the at the start in 1907. Even though the 1907 Act, believe it or not, is still in operation here. It's the Probation Act. Yeah, the 1907 yeah. Probation of Offenders Act. And that's still in operation. It's quite a good piece of legislation, but it's long overdue for, Obviously, for renewal. Goodness. And the government have promised to do that, but it hasn't, yeah, it hasn't happened so far. Well, how many governments have promised it since it's there? Well, there's actually the heads of a bill since 2014. Right. But that's nearly 10 years and it hasn't moved on. And probation again is comes in, it comes into effect when somebody reaches the end of their sentence. And we were talking before we came on. So 
people don't tend to understand sentencing. It's quite complex. It's a mathematical, it, you know, it, it it is a mathematical thing. But going into prison on a sentence outside of murder, which there's a mandatory life sentence for, but you get guaranteed 25% off that remission. Do you ever, what, why? It's, it's evolved over, over many years. And I think even nowadays it's been tested in the courts a couple of times and it's seen as a kind of a constitutional right to, to 20, give remission. 25% remission. It's a bit like 25% off in the sales and yeah, not only Black is. Friday, isn't it? But it started out as an incentive to people to be well behaved and to apply themselves yeah. to positive programs in prison. But it has become so uh, established or ingrained in the system. It's like, I guess, like squatters' rights. Once yeah. you have it, you have it. So no matter what you do, you get it. Well, no, if you misbehave, you can have remission taken right. off you. Okay. Um, and but, who's that up to? The prison? Yeah, the prison governor. Yeah. yeah. But if you get a four-year sentence, just to give you an example, you're going to serve three mm-hmm. with remission. Now, if you have some of your remission removed in slices, you can have that whittled away a bit. But otherwise, all going well, you'll get out after three years. And are you under supervision for the fo- you know for that last year? No. Or is it, you're done? No, remission is you're done. You're done. Yeah, okay. that's the way, for example, it operates in the UK as well. In, in the UK, they have higher rates of remission. Okay. You know, bigger than what we have here. I mean, people are sometimes shocked when they hear we have 25% remission, but... Uh, the 50%, I think, in yeah, the UK, don't they? Yeah, I think it's they? 50, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you hear these massive big sentences, sentences these guys get, yeah. and you're like, wow, they're never going to get out. And then you go, oh, they will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 20 years is 10 and all the rest of it. But then they have to serve the rest on license, which means, I think, if they misbehave, they're back in. That's right, yeah. They, yeah. Yeah, they, they haven't yeah. Yeah, brought that in over there, yeah. How policeable that is with so many, I, I don't know. But so then... Just to talk about parole. So parole relates to those lifers. Yeah, the Parole Act 2019 uh, was brought into effect in 2021. We have had a parole system, but not on a statutory basis before that. So there was what was called the Interim Parole Board. But the the new system, which is based on the 2019 legislation, is much more structured. Now, it is intended that it will apply to people serving long sentences uh, generally, but at the moment it's only applicable if somebody is serving a life sentence and they're eligible for to apply for consideration after it's either 10 or 10 and a half years served and then the earliest they could get out is after 12 years. Right. Now that doesn't mean they will get out after after 12 years, but that's the, that's the time scale in which they can be considered for yeah, parole. Yeah, yeah. And the average, I think, life sentence is somewhere around 18 or 20 years. Also around 20, I think, easily now. Yeah. Again, when I was working initially as a probation officer, it was uh, incredibly low by today's standards. Like it was nine years at one stage or 10. Yeah, yeah. But that's crept up over the years. And maybe that's where that all developed, that sort of life doesn't mean life Mm. kind of thing you hear constantly from yeah. victims and their families, you do hear that. And I mean, life doesn't actually mean life. There is a, there, there is. Well, it doesn't mean life in prison. It does mean it does. A, you, you, you have the life sentence for the rest of your life. So yeah. even after you're released, you're under supervision by the probation service for the rest of your life. And there's loads of conditions attached to that. Yeah, there obviously, are. Obviously, yeah, you know, yeah. and if you, you can be, you can be brought, brought back, back in. Yeah. And Some people are, generally there's a very high rate of compliance and to be honest, a very low rate of reoffending. For those life sentences? Yeah, for those people who are released. Even you know. in organised crime? Um, I suppose anyone who's spent 20 years looking yeah, in a jail yeah. cell is going to really have to want to, to to 
go again. Like, they will, know. and it's quite strict at the start, you know, yeah. particularly, you know, so that you'd be under close yeah. watch yeah. Uh, in the early months or years even, mm. uh, and also depending on what you had done. I suppose we've yet to see what happens with some of the people involved in, you know, the current type of organised crime when, the, when their time for yeah. parole comes up. I mean, we were only speaking earlier about some of them in particular, some of the um, the prisoners, you know, the ones from Limerick who are coming to the ends of life sentences, a lot of those gangland murders yeah. that happened at the beginning of the 2000s, there's yeah. people coming up now for release. Mm. Uh, some of them are still young. They are. Men, yeah. Yeah. old men. I don't think there's yeah. women serving life no, for gangland so. murder no. yeah. in this country anyway. But um, yeah, and a lot of them have kept their hand into criminal activity from behind bars, which is another thing that surprises and uh, outrages people. But mm. unfortunately, it is just mm. the nature of the prison system and the nature of some people will never be compliant to society's norms. And some people will, in fairness, mm. you know, because I've seen the other side. I have seen that side where yeah. there are people who, after many, many years, don't really seem to have changed a whole lot, if at all. And then I have seen individuals who clearly have and have even looked for assistance in moving, you know, relocating right. to other parts of the country because they feel if they go back to the same area, it'll be really hard to just stay out of the way of the people that they were previously involved in. So, you know, they're, you know, the whole uh, the whole concept of probation is based on that idea of a second chance. Now, it's, it's, it's interwoven with realism as well. Yeah. You know, people don't all change. They don't change overnight. But I think we do have to, um, we certainly do operate on the basis that everybody can change, you know. Yeah. Whether they do or not now is open to a number of different factors. But I've seen people who at different times over the course of, you know, the probation services contact with them, you'd say there's not a hope of this right. person changing. And they do. Really? Genuinely, yeah. Yeah. And obviously you can't name names, but no. I was just going to say to you, you you kind of finished your career at the very top. You're yeah. probably in a, in a management role where you weren't meeting the people on the ground. Exactly, yeah. But you came up to that yeah. management position. Um, so you, you've done plenty of boots on the ground work. Mm. And what did you see and what did you come away with your thoughts on human beings and criminals and, you know, you know, what do you kind of think about people changing and rehabilitating and what's your thoughts on prisons and how they work? I do think, uh, just some random thoughts to some extent, I do think, unfortunately, over the, over the decades, over the centuries, we've come to view prison as the default. You know, when, when we think of uh, crime and punishment, we think of prison, and that's unfortunate. I do think that prison, as it's supposed to be by government policy, should be the sanction of last resort. Mm. I think we do damage to people by putting them in prison where they don't need to be. And particularly for young people, you know, some research has found even very short periods of time spent in custody increases that individual uh, individual's likelihood of committing more crime and being back. So I think we should always be trying where we can to divert people at the appropriate level. Um, I do believe people can change, and I have seen that they change. But again, sometimes people feel it should be automatic, you know, that if you give them a chance of probation, they, they should change like that. Yeah. Um, why don't they see the light? Why don't they appreciate the chance they're being given? But as any of us know, any 
change that we try to make in our lives, whether it's, you know, a fitness program, trying to lose a bit of weight or yeah. whatever, as give I know. Give up the bad habits. Uh, yeah, give up the bad yeah. habits. Um, it's very, very hard. It's hard to keep it up. It's hard to keep it up. Go ask with gusto in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and it's often described in the in the offending uh, literature, but it, it, it equally applies in other areas. It's a zigzag path. Mm. So to some extent, we have to allow, you know, we have to try and hold people and try and encourage them and support them to make the changes. And a lot of the time they want to make changes, like people in other aspects of their lives. It's just very, very difficult. Um, and I do believe that punishment should be proportionate. You know, there's sometimes a tendency to feel if we give this guy a good lash at the early stage, it'll, mm. it, it just doesn't work like that. It doesn't that. work like that. And I get the impression from what you're saying there, um, do you think that the rehabilitation works better in the community than behind the walls of a prison? A hundred percent. And research has shown that. That idea is one of the key cornerstones of rehabilitation uh, for people who have offended, uh, i.e. it works better in the community. Now, I'm not saying people, some people don't need to go to prison. They do. But the idea that prison is of itself rehabilitative is not true in my opinion. Mm. Um, we do need to build in as much rehabilitation as we can, and we do as a system, which are always working against the tide in the context of custody. It's because prison in and of itself is harmful at some level mm. in terms of somebody's likelihood of reoffending. In every country in the world, there are higher reoffending rates for people who've been uh, locked up in prison. And ironically, one of the other features, which is kind of counterintuitive, is the fact that people who get shorter prison sentences are more likely to reoffend, ironically, uh, than people who serve longer ones. And over the last number of years, the Central Statistics Office here in Ireland produced excellent figures on reoffending for the in respect of the prison population and the probation population. And, you know, it, it you can see there that people who get and serve shorter sentences actually reoffend more than people who serve long. And that's been found in other countries. Is that to do with that? It, you sort of lose your ability maybe to get legitimate work and things like that because you've had this conviction, you've been in jail. Yeah. You maybe lose relationships that you had Absolutely. prior it, to going in and a bit of respect and all those other things. Whether you get a six-month sentence or a six-year sentence, you're going to experience a lot of the same disruption in your life. A lot of loss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You'll, you you may lose family relationships. You may, If you had a job, you lose your job. You may lose your accommodation. As I say, whether it's for six months you're in or yeah, six years. Yeah. And the other downside is that if you're only in for a short sentence, the prison system and other agencies like probation and the various other bodies will find it very hard to engage with you because you'll be gone before they get any kind of you know, have you established an education yeah. or training programs? So you get all of the the bad stuff mm. and much less of the good stuff and on a short the benefits. Um, you're talking about it being hard, I suppose, to rehabilitate within the prison environment. And there's many reasons for that as well, because it's a very unnatural environment. Yeah. Um, and you're also surrounded by danger and by, you know, in, in the male prisons in particular, I suppose everyone has to be big, tough mm. guy. You can't be somebody who's, you know, going down to, well, I mean, people do and they'll go to classes and they'll go to education and they'll go to anger management and all these things. But you must constantly have to be like on, on edge and ready to, that fight or flight mode has to be 
Yeah, you do. And, you know, when I hear people saying, oh, you know, prison is a holiday camp, they have televisions in their mm. cells and all that. That's just not true. You know, uh, any prison officer will tell you about these tough guys who come into prison, you know, walking around like macho men on the landing, and then they they can hear them crying at night in, in, in their cell. It's it's a, a terrible place yeah. to be in. Um, Scary. And also, God, is everyone not a little bit claustrophobic? Yeah. You know, seriously, know, know. that you yeah. can't walk out. And of course, modern thinking is that the the, you know, taking somebody's freedom mm. is how we as a society punish them. And there's that general sense of not being able to walk out the door, not being able to get walk out and get fresh air, or go down to the shops, get what you want, make yourself a cup of tea, but things like that. Maybe in certain prisons they can do that, but yeah, it's... Yeah, everything, you're absolutely right. Everything is abnormal. The relationships you have with other people in the prison are abnormal. They're not... They're not the same type of social interactions that you have yeah. in the community. Um, I was reading something recently where, from somebody who had been in a in a prison and saying, you know, the whole the whole aspect of choice in people's lives is taken away when mm. they're in prison. You know, they don't even open a door yeah. themselves that has to be open for them. They're served their meals at a certain time. Um, so huge elements of choice that we would see as normal in our lives. Are and even the choice away. to get the hell away from somebody who's annoying you. Exactly, yeah. Or, yeah. you know, or bullying you mm. or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, in fairness, the, you know, the, as I say, prison in and of itself, I think, is, is not a good place, no, no matter mm. how, uh, how good or how modern we make it. And just last week, I was at a meeting in uh, in a Council of Europe working group in Strasbourg, and one of the guys in the uh, Committee for the Prevention of Torture, as it's known, um, which visits all of the country's prison systems uh, to examine how they're doing and what, yeah. what conditions are like. And he was commenting, he, he, partly because he saw me at the table, he was saying, I just want to comment on the, the huge strides that the Irish Prison Service have made over you know, the last 10, 15 years or mm. whatever. Um, but it's always, as I say, in my view, against the tide of... Overcrowding. Of overcrowding and, and yeah. just the, the very nature of what prison is. And the gangs as well. I mean, there's no doubt about it, but the successes on the outside by sort of the likes of the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau have created problems, I suppose, within the prison system because you have these vast, powerful gangs mm. and they've had to be sort of broken up and moved around. And together, they're powerful within the prison environment in the same way as they are outside it. They are. Any any problem that we have in society generally is replicated and possibly multiplied in prison. Yeah. So, yeah, whether it's gangs, drugs, violence, mental health issues, whatever it is, yeah. they're all in prison and they're probably and likely to be much worse even. Yeah. Now, on to probation. And, of course, that is essentially the managing of individuals in the community. Mm. Um, and you were saying to me that everybody, every sentence comes to an end and every prisoner, if they don't die within prison system, has to be released. And they have to go back to something. Yeah. They have to be given hope mm -hmm. of some sort. Um, but then you have the problem with no community wants the likes of a sex offender and no community really wants a killer living amongst them, mm -hmm. um, even though they're all over the country. You know yeah. what I mean? I know many's a place they don't have a clue who's living on the road. Um, and that's probably the ideal way 
it is. We were talking about sex offenders being released, about the media's role in drumming up. We've often been accused of hysteria about the release of a prisoner back into the community, the problems that causes for the probation service who are trying to manage an individual mm-hmm. who's constantly been exposed and constantly having to move. It's a disaster. It is. And that whole area of the media, you know, following people and so on, I think is problematic. It's not helping mm. anybody. Um, I don't really think that it, it, it adds to the safety of any community because it tends to push people to, to run from, from where they are. Um, and the more that uh, anyone in that situation has to go underground or go missing or whatever, in my view, only makes them more potentially dangerous, mm. more likely to reoffend. Um, but but it is a problem. It, like it certainly is a problem. And you know, some people uh, who have studied the whole area of desistance, as it's known, which is about stopping offending, would describe that there's three phases in it. First of all, the, the person themselves has to stop offending. So that's the the physical stopping of committing the yeah. crime. The second bit is they have to they have to really make a change in their head. They have to start and continue to see themselves as people who are not offenders. But the third element, and it's really critical, is the people around them Mm -hmm. and wider society have to see them as people who are not offenders anymore. And unfortunately for a lot of people, particularly people who've committed homicide or sexual or violent offences, it's very difficult to get to that stage. Yeah. But again, I have seen people, I've seen people who've served lengthy periods of time in custody for, um, you know, as part of a life sentence. And they're currently out probably even longer than they served in prison. And they're doing very well. As you say, they're living in Mm. various communities and people around them wouldn't even know their background. And like, you know, you've obviously spoken to a hell of a lot more people than I have who are offenders, but I have spoken to a good few. And um, that there's an element of ignorance or lack of education, whatever you call it, causes fear and fear is a debilitating and, and you're irrational with fear and anxieties. You don't think rationally, but actually sometimes meeting these people who've done these terrible things maybe um, makes you realize that they are human beings who made a dreadful mistake or committed a dreadful crime, but they're maybe not as scary when you communicate with them as they were before you spoke to them. Very true. Very true. Mm. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that numerous times. Um, I remember, you know, way back in the 90s, running with colleagues, you know, group programs with people who'd committed sex offences, you know, very violent sexual offences, and bringing in people from the outside, uh, including, for example, some people who were working in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And to be honest, the people in prison serving the sentences were more nervous about meeting, yeah. about meeting yeah. somebody in that position than the person coming in. So absolutely, at, at, at the end of the day, whatever they've done, they are still human. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, they're experiencing a lot of the same emotions that anybody would. And some maybe are still dangerous, which is where the probation service mm. come in to managing them. Yeah. Yeah, the, the you know, because of um, probation officers training as social workers and uh, their work and then you know, they would all get in-service training as well within the probation service, in particular, 
particularly in specific areas of work that they're going to be working in. So the two areas of work that probation officers do in general are assessment and supervision. And all all probation officers would be trained in risk assessment because that's the type of assessment mm. that we're concerned about. So it's assessing the risk of somebody reoffending uh, and of causing harm again in the future. So, uh, you know, officers are trained in all of those areas. And then they're also trained in relation to uh, the particular interventions that they use or types of supervision that they use with offenders generally, and then particularly those that have a specific history of offending. So on a practical level, how does that work? You know, let's say, for example, you have a, you know, a sex offender coming out into the community. Let's say, for example, there's somebody who have offended a particular category, particular age group of a child. You know, I think that's people are really afraid of the idea of child sex offenders living amongst them. Yeah. You'll always find a school nearby because mm. there's always a school nearby, isn't there, mm. to anyone? And how do you manage that? How do you risk assess it and manage it? Well, the first point I'd say is that, you know, this doesn't start the day before that somebody somebody gets out of prison. Yeah. So somebody who has committed an offence of the type you're describing is probably going to have done a number of years yeah. in prison. Um, and they may have been known to the probation service before that. You know, it's quite likely that a probation officer might have done an assessment report for the court mm-hmm. in sentencing. So that that ongoing relationship that an individual probation officer or officers would have with the individual would be very important. Um, and then as part of, you know, general social work training, the whole engagement, development of a professional relationship with the individual um, in the context of openness and trust and so on mm. would mean that you would know a lot about this individual Anyway, and then risk assessment is done in depending on the on the particular type of offending is done in a very structured way to identify what uh, factors or triggers mm. might have contributed to the part because even even though somebody might have a generic term of sex offender or murderer or whatever, there are always very individual and specific factors yeah. that might have been at play when they committed their offense or offenses. Um, so you'd be assessing, you know, what type of factors were were relevant in that case. And ultimately, through all of that, you'd be working with the individual and also with others. We work on a very multidisciplinary basis. So we'd be liaising with our psychology colleagues and others as appropriate um, to put together a, a case management plan mm. for what are the warning signs, if you like, that might indicate that this person is at risk again. And uh, equally, what are the strengths or positive factors? Because if, for example, somebody has um, uh, a family or a peer group around them that are pro-social, I'm not talking about a gang, of, yeah. you know, in a negative sense, but people that can be relied upon. Um, if to, they're perhaps welcomed back into the family home or exactly, and yeah. there's people around them. Which would equally have to yeah. be assessing that those around them were being realistic and were being right. honest and so on. One of the one of the initiatives that's been developed that you might have heard of is the Circles of Support and Accountability, uh, which is used with people who've committed sexual offences in Ireland. And it started off in Canada initially, and it's used in a number of countries where a number of people are uh, recruited as volunteers and trained, and they're, they 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 operate as the term describes as a circle, mm-hmm. both of support but also of accountability. And 
it doesn't remove the role of the probation officer or the guards or whoever, because the guards, for example, would always be involved in the supervision of a yeah. sex offender in the community. But they they provide extra eyes and ears to the supervisory functions while also providing supports, pro-social supports. For the offender. For the offender mm-hmm. themselves, yeah. So, like, obviously, like anything, it works better if the offender doesn't want to reoffend, yeah. right? If they're at the table with yeah. everybody else. So if they're against it and they're trying to be sneaky. But you're dealing with people who are inherently dishonest in some way because they've gone to prison, they've committed crime. They've probably got pretty good armory, some of them, to lie, to deceive, all these things. The longer you're in the job, I presume, you can see that. You can. And I mean, nobody can ever 100% eliminate every risk or, yeah. you know, be 100% correct in our assessments and predictions mm. of what will or won't happen. But you do develop a sense. A sense. Yeah. And even, as I said earlier, when you're doing that with the individual while they're in prison as well, because you'll see some of the same clues or whatever emerge. And by and large, believe it or not, a lot of people are, are very open in that context of, you know, particularly and hopefully they have acknowledged their responsibility for what they did mm. and, you know, explored that in detail with the probation officer and the psychologist and whoever. Um, and as I say, believe it or not, they can be quite open about when they feel they're probably more likely to be at risk. Mm. Um, and I would tend to see that a lot more or have seen that a lot more than the, the other. Opposite. Yeah, the opposite, yeah, the, the deception rarer. and so on. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm not ruling that out. It does yeah. happen. Yeah. And how do you deal with, I mean, in particular, those involved in organized crime, you know, and they, a lot of individuals who have committed acts for groupings who've been directed or have been paid to perhaps kill somebody. There are people who aren't coming mostly, in my experience, from a supportive home or a warm, loving home in the first place. So they're sometimes coming back out of prison to what? I mean, they don't have a support structure. That makes them more difficult, to presume, to try and manage? It does. I mean, positive or supportive peer structures are really important. Um, and, you know, equally positive family relationships. Very often, the people that probation officers are working with are lacking a lot of those positive supports. So, really, you'd have to be trying to help them at various stages to to develop those. And it's it's not really easy. Um, but very often people can be well motivated to change. Sometimes they they just don't see a light for themselves at the end of the tunnel. Mm. Uh, one of the things that you've reminded me of there is the whole area of drug-related intimidation, which is a really significant problem uh, in, in many communities in Ireland. And some people do end up, unfortunately, often at a very young age, getting involved in really serious offending. Um because they get drawn in mm. uh, and pressured and so on. Uh, and then they're caught in a whole loop of that that type of offending. So yeah, it really is difficult. One of the initiatives that we introduced with the prison service and the guards uh, uh, in my time in probation was the joint agency response to crime. And that was specifically targeting much more serious offenders. Um, and... Uh, putting it in a simple way, it was offering a kind of a carrot and a stick in in the sense that uh, we were always making it clear that the various agencies were completely 
you know, working together and that we were prepared on the one hand, if the individual wanted a way out to help them mm. to change their lives in whatever way we could. And equally that the surveillance element was there and the the law enforcement element was there, particularly on the on the Garda side, obviously, um, to intervene if that needed to be done. And again, that was that was, you know, really positive. Again, one particular individual, I didn't know him personally, but I was aware of him through the program, that people at the start said would never. He was one of the most serious people involved yeah. in his area. Uh, and he made huge positive changes. And even at this stage when that was happening, some people were saying there's some He's at something. He's at something. Yeah. some trick yeah. on. And it emerged over time that there wasn't, that mm. he really was making changes. So sometimes it's really about giving people opportunities and supporting them to avail of those opportunities, mm. sometimes with, with a bit of the, the stick in the background. And what about sort of supporting people away from the areas maybe that there is all that negativity for them and like an addict really. Mm. You know, a lot of them are going straight back into the middle of the problem place. Yeah. Um, is there any sort of encouragement to, you know, this may sound silly, but for them to go to a different country, for example, to try again, try and start again, or do many human beings have those skills to be able to completely relocate and change their lives to that extent? I, I, I wouldn't have seen that in the probation context mm. uh, in terms of relocating to other countries. And I should say as well, while relocating is sometimes a good option, we have to bear in mind that people you know, have usually have some strengths in where they're coming from, whether it's their family, mm. their peers, their friends, and so on. So um, in relation to their friends, not all of their friends may be a good influence, true, true, but some yeah. of them may be. Yeah. Or sometimes they might have an uncle or a grandfather or yeah. a grandmother who is a good influence. So you'd have to be careful not to remove somebody. From positive as well from as From positive negative, as well yeah. as negative. Yeah, yeah. Um. How many people then in the community do you know in at the moment are on probation? On any on any day, there's around ten thousand people in contact with the probation service every day, but around eight thousand of those are under supervision. The other two thousand would be eight thousand are under supervision. Yeah, around 8, so twice the amount of people that are in prison. Yeah, yeah. People presume that. Yeah. Uh, if I can use the term, all the bad guys are in prison. But, yeah. Um, people who offend are twice as likely on those numbers to be under supervision in the community. And how many people are working in the service, like managing all those people? There's about 500, you know, at the most, I'd say. Right, yeah. 500 managing 8,000. Yeah. So how do you keep up with what they're doing? I mean, I suppose they're all on varying levels of what they, they are, have to do. They are, yeah. Some of them are signing on, so a lot of that will happen within the guard. It's taken away from the probation and that's the responsibility of the guard stations? Well, the people who are under under probation supervision are getting some sort of contact and engagement with the probation Every service. day? No, not every day, no. Now, some of them would be under more intensive supervision for reasons that I mentioned earlier on because yeah. of the nature of their offending. But the whole idea is that if somebody is under supervision for a year or two years or three years or whatever it is, that as they hopefully demonstrate that they're doing what's required, mm -hmm. they're staying out of trouble, the level of contact that you would have with them, with that individual, would decrease. Because that's the whole point. We're not there to be sitting on top of them or holding their hand forevermore. So, you know, you'd be kind of easing your, your way back. And we introduced a number of years ago, for example, a category of low-intensity supervision. So that's the, the lowest mm -hmm. level. Um, so particularly in the early stages and depending on the nature of the 
of the issues that somebody was trying to deal with. They could be in contact every day or it could be, you know, once or twice a week. And then it would it would move out from that. Usually when there's something chaotic or risky happening, there would be more intensive contact. And sometimes we have specific intensive programs like the Joint uh, uh, Agency Response to Crime. That would have involving the guards, the, prisoner, uh, the prison service and ourselves, um, probation, that would have involved very intensive, like at least once a week, if right. not more. So, as I say, it depends. Um, Is that intensive, once a week, c- contact with an offender? Once a week could be intensive, yeah. yeah. But it, it depends on what's happening. Yeah. You know, if, if, if there's relatively little happening, but you still need to keep a regular contact, once a week would be fine. Mm-hmm. But there might be periods of time, you know, weeks where it could be every day or two days or whatever. It, it, it depends on what needs to be done at the particular time. Yeah. There can be a sense with victims of crime that probation and parole services are almost like the enemy to them. Mm. Um, in particular, parole have been seen, parole boards, and up until 20, recently, the 2019 mm-hmm. changes were brought through legislation, I think. Um, the ultimate decision on whether somebody should be released from prison lay with the Minister for Justice. It's now a completely independent body and victims of the crime are offered an opportunity to meet with the parole board. Is that right mm, nowadays? Right, yeah, and they can do yeah. that remotely if they need to or yeah. physically. Yeah. Um, and they can put their cases to them. Mm. But so before they were operating on a haphazard basis, but victims were writing to they were, the yeah, parole they, board. Yeah, they but it just wasn't structured. Is that what it, what it is? Yeah, they, they, so, so now under the new legislation, um, uh, victims' uh, needs and rights are much more acknowledged in centered. a structured way, centred. Yeah, yeah. And they, they can, you know, it's, and, and there's a much better level of communication and publicity, for want of a better word, about how the, uh, transparency yes. about how the parole board operates. They're written to, I think, and told. That's right, they're the, invited yeah, and all yeah. of that. And they can have legal representation. Yeah. And As you know, can the offender. As can the offender. And nothing is compulsory for the victim. They don't have to get involved yeah. either, but they, mm. they can and they're facilitated. But do you see what I mean? Sometimes they are seen as because, you know, probation and parole are sometimes seen as being soft on the offender or something or there for for the offender. Yeah. How do you like react to that? Or is that again a bit of a lack of understanding and education of the community to what's actually going on behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, people think, I've, I've a few thoughts on that. People think that probation or any kind of a community sanction like community service is a let off to yeah. some extent. Um, and much more research has been done in recent years on what's, you know, we, we've looked at the pains of punish of imprisonment, but there are restrictions and pains to some extent of supervision. You know, there is an element of mm. aspects of your liberty being taken away. No, your ultimate liberty yeah. is, is not taken away. But people should be aware that there are requirements on people who are subject to supervision, that they have to meet the requirements of what the court or the parole board or whoever has has ordered. And, you know, that is overseen mm-hmm. to the extent that is required. Um, and to some extent, you know, for, for individuals who are victims of crime, whether that's, you know, the, the most serious crimes or less serious crimes, uh, for any of us, you know, there are emotions attached mm-hmm. to that. And some people have written recently about 
Um, you know, the, the common ones being anger, fear, and disgust. You know, that's so when we're the victim of even a relatively minor crime, our immediate reaction is probably anger, and then we may be afraid of the individual. And there's the disgust is related to the idea that we want to push them away. We don't want to see them again. That's related to the whole thing of putting them in prison, uh, in a sense, banishing them from our lives. Looking at it from a kind of a colder or more objective lens or standpoint, I think as a society, we need to think, what do we want? You know, what do we want at the end of the day? And in my experience, many, a lot of victims will even say, you know, they really want to understand what happened to them. Very often, if it's a personal uh, violent offense, they want to understand why they were selected or chosen. Yeah. They do want the offender to be held to account. And ultimately, they want or they would like to feel that that is not going to happen to them or to anyone else again. So, like, that calls for a much more nuanced approach because mm. just putting them into prison is not going to satisfy all of those needs. And again, I'm not saying that some people don't need to go to prison, but if we prison is not going in itself to reduce or the likelihood of somebody reoffending, it's not going to provide all the answers for the victim. So, you know, and I'm not saying probation does either, but, you know, when we look at the whole setup, uh, whether it's through prisons, probation, initiatives like restorative justice, uh, we need to be providing different levels, I think, mm -hmm. of responses that try and deal with those issues. And in a way, we have total empathy with the victim, mm -hmm. but we have to do, we have to probably make more sort of decisions for the greater good. Mm. And for yeah. the for the overall, but yet keeping the victim as centre, it's quite a complex thing to do, really, isn't it? It is, and you know, there's there's a lot of talk nowadays about um, community safety and well-being yeah. rather than crime as yeah. such. You know, yeah. so there's an increasing recognition at government and policy level that individual and community well-being is not only about an absence of crime. You know, there has to be. It's not just about taking people who offend off the streets. Mm. There has to be another qualitative response because ultimately all of those people who are taken off the streets are going to end up back on the streets anyway. Yeah, and do yeah. we want them coming back as better or worse people? And sort of finally, Vivian, would you, did you enjoy your career? Did you enjoy I your did. work? And I, you still are working, yeah. obviously, in in not as sort of hands-on, but yeah. Yeah. You think you made a difference? Do you, is there things that stand out for you maybe that... Uh, yeah, I would, I would hope that I did make a difference, um, both with individual people that I worked with yeah. Uh, under my supervision, I, I always enjoyed that. Um, and then as I moved up through the various ranks within the probation service, I had a chance to contribute to, you know, the development of policy and legislation and so on, mm -hmm. and how the mm -hmm. um, probation system was organized. I mean, just one example was I was a member of the uh, Strategic uh, Penal Policy Review Group in 2014 that published a uh, well, presented to the minister mm. a significant report in relation to penal policy that was it was adopted by government and so on. So, um, yeah, change making, hmm? change making, Cha hopefully yeah, change making. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was really, um, and it's it's. Uh, I really enjoyed being part of a group of people who were operating from a similar value and training and uh, motivation base. Mm. And also, I'm sure you see the bigger picture, which is where Ireland sits in the rest of the world and if you've been around some parts of the world into their prisons and, you know, seen 
the conditions yeah. people are housed in, etc. Um, you know, we always have to kind of keep a grip on that because we are really not that bad in this country compared to others. No, I mean, I've, I've, I have been in other countries and um, I've seen some, some terrible conditions. Um, and equally, I've seen people in other countries doing great things with very limited really, resources. Yeah. yeah. What sometimes not quite annoys me, but I kind of smile sometimes is, you know, when people say, oh, we should be looking to the Scandinavian countries and they're so much better than us in, mm. in relation to their criminal justice system. I think, you know, our, our, certainly our, our um, probation system, our prison system here in Ireland, you know, stands right up there. And some, you know, talking recently, again, to some colleagues from some of the Scandinavian countries, they're struggling uh, with prison overcrowding, prison numbers going up. Um, and that's another feature of this whole area. You know, you're never done. There's always yeah. new things impacting, whether it's new legislation, new types of offending or whatever. Yeah. Well, Vivian Guerin, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show, love it why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.